Welcome to Macintosh and Mod Haven't Seen What, the podcast where we make each other watch movies we should have already seen. I'm Diana. And I'm David. And today it's our last movie in our 1967 Oscars coverage. It's In Cold Blood. After a botched robbery results in the brutal murder of a rural family, two drifters elude police in the end coming to terms with their own mortality and the repercussions of their vile atrocity. Okay. <sighs> this is a This is a hard movie to parse. It's very strange. Knowing the full context of this and in this discussion that we're going to have, I think it's going to reframe it a bit. Mm-hmm. I don't think it makes it any better of a movie. Okay. But it did help me understand the choices that were being made. Mm. Because this movie is very much intended to be a true docudrama. Mm-hmm. Everything that was done was done to try to hit at the truth of what happened in this story and trying to get as much verisimilitude as we could get in order to, I don't know, have have that rawness of feeling. Mm -hmm. I think there are parts of it, especially near the end of this movie, where it really works. Mm-hmm. And there are parts where it is not compelling to watch at all. And it's incredibly uneven. Okay. I think this is a very fascinating experiment for stuff that would come later. Mm-hmm. But because it's the first run at it, and because it's so imperfectly done, it comes off as mostly kind of boring. Yeah. They were trying to do some some interesting things. And- there's a part of that it's almost like this movie's trying to live up to the newness that was created by the book. A little bit. Well, this this book, In Cold Blood by mm-hmm. Truman Capote, created the nonfiction genre. It did. Because there were things he didn't know, so he made it up. Yeah, I mean it it created true crime for sure. Yeah. So it was almost like and and that that in and of itself was like this phenomenon. Yeah. On top of this story. And then it's kind of like this movie is trying to do that. And it wasn't bad, but it just wasn't great. The thing I think about is this got perfected a lot in live theater. Mm-hmm. I think about the Laramie Project and the Exonerated, which is one of my favorites, and how you're having to ride the line between details mm-hmm. and getting those very specific details recorded accurately while at the same time investing a lot of the performance and the acting into the gaps between those details. Yeah. There was some European cinema that did stuff like this, where it was very much well-known actors, but basically in a documentary. The Battle of Algiers is probably the best example of this, which is shown to like military personnel for Mm -hmm. how to stage guerrilla warfare. That's how accurately they portrayed what was going on in those battles. So like- there's that element, and this movie just does a really messy job of that. Mm-hmm. It it does not do a good job of putting that all together. I think that's my biggest problem. There's that. I, I don't disagree with that, but it also just, it really did move too slowly. That too. It just slogged and it didn't get to like the details. The one thing that I, I do really like that this is probably more of a director choice is that the, the one guy seeing the face of his family members in the face of other people. And so I I liked that because this definitely was a new concept in film for at least American audiences, I believe, at this time. 
And so I thought that was really effective because it would be really quick. Yeah. So that was kind of cool. It's just the movie was so slow. It does not honestly get interesting until the last third of the movie. Yeah. When we finally get to the the confession of the murder. Mm-hmm. And that sequence is haunting. It's it's really good. Like, and it, it is super impactful, but it just takes so long to get there. Mm-hmm. And we're trying to do such a specific job of chronicling exactly how this timeline works mm-hmm. that we don't really feel invested enough. Mm-hmm. It just takes too long to get between those set pieces, which is weird because it's a really quickly edited movie. Like it's tr- moving as fast as it possibly can. Yeah. So I don't know. It's it's hard. All right. The budget for this movie was $3.5 million. Okay. So a rough equivalent of $27 million in today's money. Okay. It's a decent sized budget for this kind of a movie. I have to imagine a good amount of that was film stock. Like doing this in black and white. Yeah. I when, when it started, I was like, oh, is this a black and white movie? And you're like, yeah. And I was like, oh, that was a choice. Yeah. It's very much a choice in 1967. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It made $13 million, so the rough equivalent of $100 million. Great return. Which is a pretty good return for a movie. A smaller movie, but good return on it. And I mean, this book was gigantic. Oh, it was a huge deal. So I, I don't doubt it was going to make a ton of money. All right, the writing. Obviously, this is based on Truman Capote's book. And we could do an entire episode on that fucking book. <laughs> like We could do an entire episode about the two movies based on the making of that book. Both were very good. Those movies, of course, being Capote and Infamous, coming out roughly the same time as each other. Before this, in film, he wrote Indiscretion of an American Wife, Beat the Devil, the novel Breakfast at Tiffany's, and The Innocents. Mm -hmm. The background to this specific story is that Capote went to Kansas shortly after the murders to cover the manhunt and the fallout with the Clutter family. Mm -hmm. So he goes there as a journalist, and after the arrest and conviction, he became very close with the killers, specifically Smith, mm-hmm. who is portrayed by Scott Wilson in this movie. Yep. Um, Smith actually wound up giving most of his belongings to Capote, and Capote stayed for the executions, but he could not watch Smith's execution. Mm-hmm. It was too hard for him. Yeah. He earned a 30% cut of the film's gross, mm-hmm. which, I mean, he wrote this phenomenon of a book, so yeah, he he earned those film rights. Um And in the jail, on Andy's wall in the background, Mm -hmm. there is a life cover with Truman Capote on it. Okay. That's like the one little director's nod. Mm -hmm. But of course, one of the things that was talked about at the time and has continued to be talked about to this day is that Capote fabricated big chunks of this story. Yes. Now, what's interesting is to read the criticisms of it, because a lot of journalists went out to cover the story once the book came out, Mm -hmm. started to dig in. And several of them were like, we were intensely jealous. He got this scoop of an amazing story. Yeah. And once we dug in, we said, it's undoubtedly an incredible work of art. And what he fabricated, to many people, it doesn't really mess with the actual meaning of the story very much, Mm -hmm. which is why I think it's still technically fine to consider it nonfiction. But he specifically made a huge deal out of claiming that every single thing was true in the book. And they said that is the one criticism with this really, really great piece of nonfiction is that had he just said, I wrote this story based on the information I got and wanted to make something really interesting, nobody would have cared. But him claiming that every little detail was true 
opened everyone up to go find the holes in it. Yeah, it's just one of those things where it's really hard to stomach the fact that, like, you're a journalist, but also you did this, which is not true. It's, yeah, it's hard. Yeah, and... It's fuzzy. And the thing is, it goes it goes back to that thing of, like, you just need to be honest. I learned about this story, but when it came time to write this book, what I did was extrapolate from that to see if I could get it something unique out of it. Mm-hmm. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that, of exploring a true story to find something deeper inside of it, as long as you're upfront and honest. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he didn't do that. <laughs> now, this was written for the screen by Richard Brooks. Before this, he wrote 1946's The Killers, Key Largo, The Last Time I Saw Paris, Blackboard Jungle, The Brothers Karamazov, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, Elmer Gantry, Sweet Bird of Youth, Lord Jim, and The Professionals. After this, he wrote The Happy Ending, Bite the Bullet, and Looking for Mr. Goodbar. He was a friend of Truman Capote's. Okay. And so he had the in to work on the film rights for this, because Capote wanted to make it into a movie. What do you think about the writing? It's not bad. Like It's one of the things that like I feel like it's so slow, but it's not really the writing, it's the directing that's making this film so slow. Yes. That's really what it is. So the, directing, the writing is actually pretty good. Like, it's... It's nothing to get right home about, but it's it's pretty good. Well, he makes some very unique choices. The reporter character mm-hmm. that's in this story is not in the book at all. Correct. I know that. And that is representing Capote to some extent, although it is totally not Capote in terms of demeanor. <laughs> the way Brooks more described it was it was I wanted a Greek chorus, somebody outside detached to be able to voice that that perspective in the middle of the movie. That's good because otherwise then you you've create you're creating a movie about Capote, which yeah. we've seen that film and it's great, but that's not what this one is supposed to be. No. And so that was a wise decision. Mm-hmm. And the other thing he did, he specifically puts the skew on it for being anti-death penalty. Hmm. That was something he was very convicted about. To paraphrase his quote, the crime was senseless. The boys were senseless about what they'd done, and the punishment was senseless because it's not going to do a damn thing to stop this ever again. Yeah. That's his whole perspective on Mm -hmm. it, which I think is one of the other reasons what makes this movie hard is because it's incredibly bleak. It doesn't give us any happiness. There's nothing hopeful about this. No. Like, these guys did a horrible thing, and then they were murdered. Like, they they were hung. Mm Mm-hmm. That's the story. And he specifically put in that one scene with Perry saying, I have to use the restroom to just really point out what complete lack of dignity there is in being hung. Mm-hmm. Just how terrible that is to punish somebody that way. And so he drives that point home, which I think, again, is really great and fascinating, but it took too long to get there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, our directing is also Richard Brooks. He directed a lot of the same stuff he wrote. Almost everything. However, all reports are that he was kind of an angry asshole on set. Robert Blake would basically say that I think he was frustrated because he didn't know what was going on. Mm -hmm. Though Wilson almost quit this movie because of how abusive Richard Brooks would get on set. Hmm. The way Wilson put it, he said that he was a really good guy but he was way better behind a typewriter. He could not deal with people. Uh, this is the direction is horrible. That's it's really good. W- it's what's ruined. It, that's really what makes it so. Yuck. 
you know, you can you can really see it when you see Blake and Wilson acting mm-hmm. opposite each other. Yeah. When they're both pushing themselves to act in their own specific direction that doesn't really complement each other a lot. Mm-hmm. Like they have two very different wavelengths that are interesting and unique, but do not complement each other. <laughs> and on screen, their relationship just seems weird. <laughs> and not in not in a way where it's weird because these two guys are sociopaths and awful it's weird in that it doesn't make sense for human relationships Mm. (laughs) he has no concept of how to make it feel like these people are actually in the situation Mm -hmm. and that's so important if you're going to make a movie like this oh totally it's an incredibly difficult acting challenge because like i said you have to fill in those gaps that we don't know and you've got to have everybody on the same wavelength if it's going to be a documentary. Mm -hmm. It just, it doesn't work at all. Who could have been better? Before Richard Brooks took on the directing of this, Otto Preminger of Anatomy of a Murder tried to buy the rights and have Frank Sinatra star in it. Hmm. I assume in the Alvin Dewey role, which wouldn't have been bad for Frank. No, Frank Sinatra, that could have been okay. Like, I've seen... I've seen Sinatra in like three movies and in all of them, I'm like, he's a really good actor. He's got to be in the right position. Yes. And he's good. But he can he can do a really good dramatic movie. And in a movie where you need a stone faced mm-hmm. bloodhound detective, Sinatra would have been great. Hmm. They shot over 129 days in the spring, including four weeks at the Clutter Farm. Almost all of this was shot on location where the incidents occurred. Hmm. So everything that happened in that house was in the clutter house. That's the the absolute authenticity he went for. He intentionally cast non-actors in a bunch of the roles mm-hmm. in order to get that documentary feel. The courtroom was the courtroom where they were actually tried. Six of the original jurors for the trial are in the movie. Mm-hmm. Like... They did everything down to the letter on how they staged it. It's a shame because you never feel that at all. Mm. Like it feels forced and staged. A lot of it does, yes. And it's very, it's very stunted. It just, it sucks because it's like you put so much effort into this and you didn't get any of that out of this movie. Mm. (laughs) Even Nancy Clutter's actual horse, Babe was used in the scenes where they had the horse on screen. Well, that's kind of nice. There are two cluttered daughters that were not present during the murders, Mm -hmm. and they are not included in the movie specifically because they were incredibly distraught over the book. Yeah. And said, we want no part of this. Totally fair. We've already had to deal with the trauma of this. We don't want to deal with it. So Brooks said, absolutely, take you out. That's the appropriate way to handle that. Yep. Because, like, the one thing I will say is that this movie does not glorify these men. No, or, or, not at all. Or their act. It's really like, this is a fucked up thing that happened. It's a fucked up thing that happened, and it is fucked up for everyone. Nobody gets out of this unscathed. Nobody. Correct. The only scenes where they couldn't film on location were the Kansas State Penitentiary scenes. Mm-hmm. They filmed instead in a prison in Colorado, and did the hanging on a soundstage. Yeah. Which, again, that's the weird part. The hanging scenes feel like the most realistic, and they were the ones that were put in a fucking studio. Well, they did them well. Yeah. That's what it is, is that they they went to these locations, 
And because he doesn't know what he's looking for, he didn't light it well. He didn't make it look right. It just looks dingy because you're doing this in black and white. It needs to be very, very specifically lit so we can see everything Mm -hmm. except for the murder sequence because it's meant to be shadows and darkness. Which is good. The production bought the leather straps for the electric chair, the officer's uniforms, and the latrines from Scott and Hickox's cell from the Kansas penitentiary. Creepy. So they had many of those little tiny things in those scenes. That's kind of creepy. I can only imagine how that would feel being an actor on that set. Creepy as fuck. Yeah. That would not get me like, no, probably make Jared Leto happy. Oh, God. The producers actually tried to get the original judge from the trial, Judge Roland Tate, to play himself in the film, but he passed away shortly before filming started. Mm-hmm. They just, they went all out with that. One of the other issues here is that Brooks would not allow the actors to see the completed screenplay. Mm-hmm. He instead furnished them with crime scene photographs. What? I guess what he's trying to get at is, I want your authentic reaction Mm-hmm. In the moment of the scene. I, no. That's that like only- really unprofessional. Um, that's just bad. <laughs> the only way that works is if you are doing a completely imagined story. Mm-hmm. Like in Alien, when they didn't tell the actors that the alien was going to burst out of John Hurt's chest. Yeah. Then you have a sudden amazing reaction on there, film. There are times when it's just like, I want to keep something from you so I can get a I can get your true reaction. And that can be both in like scary ways, dramatic ways, it can also be in humorous ways. Yeah. And that's fine. And that's not manipulating your actor negatively. No. Like that's just I want to make sure I get that I true like you guys don't have to fabricate this element of surprise or wonder. Yeah. Because you know, we always we always talk about like with Willy Wonka when they go see the factory. That's their initial reaction. They had never seen it before. And I'm like, that's cool. Like, yeah, the thing on Alien, you could say that's a little bit manipulative, but it's like, no, if we told them, they would all be like hyped up for this thing to happen. And it's just like, you don't know when or that this is actually happening. Those are good things. This is really manipulatively, like emotional manipulation in a way that's not good. And it doesn't do anything to serve the purpose. No. When we're talking about, you know, I've said this several times now, but if you're filling in the details, mm-hmm. if you're filling in what we don't know yeah. with the actors, the actors need to take the entire story, process it, and then start to understand, okay, in this moment, this is the motivation, well, and so on and so forth. Well, and the other part of it is that if you're already filling in information that you don't know, You need to tell the actors that's what you need to give them. All we know is that this is where our point A was. This is our point B. You figure out how we get there. Exactly. Y'all, let's figure this out together or y'all figure it out. And I'm just going to let the camera follow you. And as they said, he he was shouting. He was angry. And it's because he didn't know how to get there. He just knew how to put the script together. This is Kubrick shit. It's... Like, all that manipulative crap he did on Eyes Wide Shut? No. Fuck this dude. Yes, but I think this is more negligence than manipulation. I don't don't This sounds to me more like a director who doesn't know what he's doing. Well, that's obvious. And is throwing spaghetti at the wall thinking it's going to work. All right, our actors. Mm -hmm. Robert Blake as Perry. 
He started as a child actor in Little Rascals shorts. Hmm. Which who did he play in Little Rascals? He was Mickey. Hmm. And this was like latter era Little Rascals starting in like 1939, 1940. So it might not be the same people we're all familiar with from those. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know that much about the Little Rascals, to be honest. He then was also in Wild Bill Elliott movies of that time. So he was like a serial child actor. Yeah. After this, he did the television show Beretta, mm-hmm. which was his other big claim to fame. 1981's Of Mice and Men, Money Train, and his last film was David Lynch's Lost Highway. Okay. And that is his last film because in May 2001, his wife Bonnie Lee Bakley was murdered in the parking lot of an Italian restaurant. Blake was charged with murder and solicitation for murder. It was a giant trial that eventually led to him being found not guilty, but a concurrent civil trial found him liable and ordered him to pay $30 million in restitution, eventually bankrupting him. It's widely considered that he put out a hit on his wife. Cool. He was a monster. That trial was a big deal Hollywood trial in the early 2000s. And I don't remember anything about this. I know. I, like, it totally misses me. I know, I but I, I do remember it. I was too busy drinking in college. <laughs> that's, I can guarantee you that's why. It just, it came square in between, like, OJ came in the middle of the 90s, mm-hmm. and... Like the Scott Petersons of the world came in the mid 2000s, and this was just right before it. This mm. also happened, I feel like, just before Phil Spector, and Spector got so much more coverage. Well, it's because he was already weird, but also in like a much bigger deal. He was even more of an eccentric. Yeah. But Blake went on to be an actual murderer. Cool. <laughs> so that's creepy as fuck now. Great. Setting that aside. What do you think of Robert Blake's performance? He's really good in this movie. He's trying really hard. The things that suck have to do with the direction and not him. It's hard early on Mm -hmm. to recognize what's good in his performance because a lot of it is just him being twitchy and shifty. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, okay, well, you're being twitchy and shifty, but I have no context for why. Other than like, clearly you just came out of jail. Mm Mm-hmm. It's not until later that we start to comprehend a lot of it. Yeah. And just what he has in his eyes is so captivating. He is very interesting to watch. He is. It is one of those shames that he didn't either get more stable Mm -hmm. because he could have been one of those like, you're a legitimate great actor, actor with a capital A. Mm -hmm. You probably had that in you and it just didn't happen. For whatever reason. But yeah, he he really is good and solidly makes and, you know, holds up good chunks of this movie (laughs) on his shoulders. When Perry makes a reference to the treasure of the Sierra Madre in the movie, that was an actual quote by Perry Smith. But Blake actually appeared in that film as a paperboy who sold the winning lottery ticket to Humphrey Bogart. Mm -hmm. So everybody thought it was a reference to Robert Blake as a child actor. And not an actual quote from the real killer. Hmm. Who could have been better? Early in his career, Danny DeVito stumped hard to be in this role. Danny DeVito? Yes. Wow. 1967 Danny DeVito has the same stature as Robert Blake. Robert Blake was a short man. Mm -hmm. Very, very short man. And you can kind of see it in this movie. Like, I think they have him booted up a little bit, but still. Mm Mm-hmm. You've never seen One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. 
No, I and, have not. And that is DeVito being dramatic. Okay. He's always had chops. Oh, I know that. I don't know. <laughs> I just don't know. I don't know what Danny DeVito was doing in 1967, how mm-hmm. it looked. Like I'm like, I'm so curious. But I, I appreciate the fact that Robert Blake did such an amazing job with the role he was given. Yes, he, he was very enjoyable to watch. So, like, I would be interested to see, like, what Danny DeVito would do in that type of role. But I'm fine with Robert Blake. Yep. Next up, Scott Wilson as Dick. We've talked about Scott Wilson so many times on this show. We have. Like, he just keeps showing up and we're just like, what? I think it's because... It's not just that he's a character actor. Mm-hmm. It's that he's a character actor who is constantly being called to be in some of the biggest movies ever. And he's so good. Yes. Movies that he's appeared in that we've discussed are The Right Stuff, Monster, and just a few weeks ago, In the Heat of the Night. Mm-hmm. As we talked about from that, he got the role in this film on Sidney Poitier's recommendation from In the Heat of the Night. So cool. So. After this movie, he did The Grissom Gang, The New Centurions, The Great Gatsby in 1974, The Passover Plot, The Ninth Configuration, Blue City, Malone, Young Guns 2, The Exorcist 3, Judge Dredd, Dead Man Walking, Shiloh, The Way of the Gun, Pearl Harbor, The Last Samurai, Junebug, The Host, The Heartbreak Kid, The Walking Dead, Hostels, The Exorcist 3, Legion, and The OA. Okay. He just keeps doing more and more stuff Mm because he is still with us. And still making good stuff. Who could have been better for the duo in this movie? Okay. The studio wanted Paul Newman and Steve McQueen. Oh, yeah, that would have been interesting. But it wouldn't have worked. I don't think so, but it would have been interesting. That's for sure. Brooks intentionally walked away from that idea and and said, I won't do that because of the fact that he wanted more unknown actors. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the right choice for this movie. Especially with Scott Wilson's performance, who, I mean, can we agree? He's great. Yes. He's, he's so twisted. He's the best. <laughs> like, I don't I don't have anything bad to say. He is so dark. He's so creepy. I love him. I, I don't believe that character has any conscience. Oh. At all. No. Other than maybe in his final moments of recognizing, gee, that, what a shitty thing I did. Okay, time to die. <laughs> like, that's it. He has no moral compass, and it just reads in every scene. Of course, Newman instead wound up working on Cool Hand Luke, and Steve McQueen went on to do The Thomas Crown Affair and Bullet. Okay. Around the time this was being filmed. Nearly 500 different actors were tested and viewed for those two roles. All right. John Forsyth as Alvin Dewey, our main detective. We've seen him before in Scrooged, but before this he did Destination Tokyo, The Trouble with Harry, Bachelor Father on television and the John Forsyth show. So he must have been like a host or something at once upon a time. Mm-hmm. After this, he did Marooned, Topaz, The Happy Ending, To Rome with Love, and Justice for All. He was the voice of Charlie on Charlie's Angels and the 2000s remakes mm-hmm. and the original television run of Dynasty. So in the 80s and the 70s, he got some big profile gigs on TV. That's cool. What do you think about Dewey in this role? It's fine. Outside of our two leads, I didn't get much of an impression. If there was anybody, any role where we should have cast a actual big name actor, mm-hmm. and maybe on the older side, we mentioned Sinatra, but I'm just like, if you got a legit big deal actor for this role, 
it would have given them some weight. Mm -hmm. Like I think now, and I'm like, okay, cast two unknowns for these roles. If you remade this movie, put Kevin Costner in this role. Hmm. That that would make sense. With that kind of presence. Yeah. It just, we need somebody who's a legit bankable star to be this character because it gives it some gravitas that this movie just doesn't quite have. Who could have been better? Lee Marvin wanted this role. And after seeing him in Dirty Dozen, okay. would have been pretty good. It wouldn't have been bad. Just like take Lee Marvin's sarcasm from that movie and instead make it very serious mm-hmm. and no nonsense about figuring out who did this horrible murder. Yeah. Of course, Brooks did not want to work with him because he'd already worked with him on The Professionals and he was incredibly difficult because he was a drunken <laughs> asshole. <laughs> so I get why he didn't want to work with Lee Marvin. <laughs> We talked about that. We have Paul Stewart as Jensen, the reporter. Before this, he was in Citizen Kane, Mr. Lucky, 12 O'Clock High, The Bad and Beautiful, Kiss Me Deadly, The Wild Party, King Creole, and The Greatest Story Ever Told. After this, The Day of the Locust, tons of television, opening night, and SOB. And of course, as we said, this character was not in the original book. Mm -hmm. What do you think about him? I think he was good. I'm really excited about his character role like his role in the story and so i think he did a decent job with it he does a decent job my problem is he's so just like monotone and detached and i know he's a great chorus character but it's like could you give me something that indicates you're actually interested in the story because it just feels like well i have to cover this horrible nightmare and i was like i feel like you would be more compelled if you're actually showing up to this Mm mm-hmm He's just so detached from the story that it feels like he's superfluous instead of being something that we need to ground us and guide us to where Brooks wants us to go. And that is it for our main cast. Okay. Yeah, there's no one else really worth talking about. For some Arpons, we have Jeff Corey as Mr. Hickok. He was in the original True Grit and Miracle on 34th Street. I've done a bunch of big movies, so mm-hmm. he's a well-known guy. Will Gear as the prosecutor in the court, he was the grandpa on the Waltons. Okay. John McLeam as Herbert Clutter. We saw him in Cool Hand Luke earlier. Okay. Did that the same year. Raymond Hatton as the elderly hitchhiker. This guy was born in 1887 and started doing silent films as early as 1909. Damn. His credits are like 300 long because he just did silent movie after silent movie. <laughs> so this was his last film role ever. Mm. John C. Flynn III as one of the policemen. He's of note because he went on to be the director of photography for tons of television, including Hill Street Blues, Magnum P.I., Babylon 5, and 50 episodes of a show you might know and love called Gilmore Girls. Mm. He did the episodes So Good Talk through Bon Voyage. He did So Good Talk through Bon Voyage. Yeah. I think it's like season three through season seven. Now I have to look this up. <laughs> look like, it up. I'm trying, I'm trying to be like, I'm like is Bon Voyage the, the final? I think it is, but. I don't know. We'll keep going. You can come back to that. Yep. Paul Freeze as the announcer and the officer for the rap sheet. This is a prolific voice actor who did Ludwig von Drake and Fred from Super Chicken and also narrated tons of movies. So good times. Mm-hmm. And as a driver, we have Roosevelt Greer. 
He played with the Los Angeles Rams in the 1960s. Rosie Greer is a well-known football name of yesteryear. Mm-hmm. All right, trivia. All of the photos in the house are actual photos of the Clutter family. Mm. Again, there is something about... Do you feel like we get into Uncanny Valley territory with this movie, maybe? Yes. We try so hard to get to realism that we hit that really bad valley point. Mm-hmm. Because it's like, either do a documentary or make it real in the sense of the actors feel like it's real. Because mm-hmm. that's the important thing. It's not important that everything be down to the details that were there. It's important that everybody on screen is buying into the world you've created. If you're mixing and matching those, you have a mess. And that's what this movie is. Yeah, this movie is a mess. So yes, that was good talk. That was episode 16 of season five. That's when Luke and Lorelai make up. And and then they also end up yelling at Emily. And then Bon Voyage is the series finale. So there you have it, folks. Mm Mm-hmm. The rain effect that happens on Blake's face mm-hmm. when he's talking about his father makes it look like he's shedding tears. It is an immaculate shot. It is so beautiful mm-hmm. and was lauded as an amazing effect at the time, but it was completely unplanned. The set was incredibly hot, probably because they had to do a bunch of extra lighting. Okay. And a fan was being used near the simulated rain, which blew the water against the window. Mm-hmm. But when that happened, the shadows went over his face, and Conrad Hall, who did the cinematography for this film, was like, keep it, keep it, keep it. Don't mess this up. <laughs> so they got that from a complete accident. In the original poster for this film, you see two sets of eyes, and in that, the eyes that we are seeing are not of the two actors, mm-hmm. but are the actual killers themselves. That's cool. I like that. It's one of the few times where I'm like, I actually agree with this. This is the first mainstream film to use the word bullshit on screen. Mm. Interesting. I like it. This is possibly the last black and white film from a major studio until Young Frankenstein. I believe that. Five of the younger actors were all students from the University of Kansas Theater Department. Oh, okay. So I think like the clutter daughter and... Some of those other young girls, the kid mm-hmm. or whoever. That makes a ton of sense, though. If you need non-actors and you need them in younger roles, go to the local theater group. Yep, I It's am. the easy way to do it. Yep. I'm all about it. All right. Awards. As we've said, we are not going to be talking about any awards that this may have won. Mm-hmm. Because we're going to be discussing that very soon in our Oscars 67 or 1968 Oscars coverage. It was nominated for Best Director for Richard Brooks. Yes, I'm aware. Yeah. Best Adapted Screenplay for Richard Brooks. Much better nomination. Mm -hmm. Best Cinematography. Absolutely. And Best Score for Quincy Jones. Mm, Okay. Three out of four of those are warranted. Yeah. And I'm a little disappointed that our leads didn't get recognition. But they were up against some tough competition. So Mm -hmm. I understand. Ratings. How many glass Coke bottles are you going to give this movie? Let's go light. <laughs> yeah. This is a rough movie. That's, that's, that's fair. Two. Two. It's just so boring. Oh. It was not compelling at all, but it had really good, some good performances and like some of the things it tried to do were really cool. So I'm giving it credit for that, but it's like, that's my first instinct. I'm going with two. Give me a two and a half. Okay. I agree with how boring it is to start, mm-hmm. especially when we get to the end of the movie, though. I really did start to feel myself like lurching in and being like, oh, shit, oh, shit, oh, shit. 
and really having that like whoa feeling at the end of the movie mm-hmm. like i don't know how to feel right now totally. because that is rough mm-hmm. <laughs> but it does just take so long to get there that it just doesn't buy back the time it takes away in the beginning so i think mm-hmm. because of that it it just runs right down the middle for me two and a half bottles mm-hmm. and that is it that's it. That is, those are all the films we're going to be watching for the 1968 Oscars. There's a few in here that had a good chunk of nominations and mm-hmm. some one-offs that got put in different categories. Mm-hmm. I think that the biggest takeaway here and what makes this such an interesting year for movies is writing. Yeah. We but- talked about it before, but the the scripts, the writing, the... All of the stories are just so different. And that is what's really interesting about is that how different the scripts are for 2020. Yeah. That is a very interesting parallel because the stories that each one of those films represents is wildly different when you co- when you look at writing. You know, <laughs> this is probably something that's very that's very personal for our show. Stories for us make movies. Like if you don't have a solid story there's a good chance we're just not going to like the movie. It's a hurdle. It's a and huge hurdle. Films have overcome it for sure. Yeah. Acting can overcome a lot of that. Gimmicks within the filmmaking can overcome that. But if your story isn't good, and like one of the things we kind of always harp on is if your writing is crap, your movie is going to be hard. It's going to be hard. I don't know that I've ever been able to say that is a great film that didn't have a compelling, interesting story behind it. I've seen some interesting, fascinating movies. Well, here's the thing. Those types of movies, we don't cover on this podcast because those are the ones we just go see for fun in the theater. Well, some of that, but I'm also thinking of like the super artsy movies. Like to me, it's like the, the most compelling movies I've seen that didn't have stories were ones that were very specifically designed as just images. But even then it still doesn't make a great movie. Mm. It's still just an interesting experiment, but that never reaches the level of great. Yeah. And all of these, I don't think any of them are perfect. I don't think any of them rise to the level of greatness for me, Mm -hmm. but what they did do was swing for the fences in a way that filmmakers after them really felt the ability to do that. I mean, we don't get Coppola taking a risk on The Godfather the way he did, making it such a sweeping epic without seeing movies like this, Mm. like Cool Hand Luke and Bonnie and Clyde. And we don't get, you know, some of the epic action that we get without looking at the Dirty Dozen. Oh, I agree. So this this is a year where it's like these movies, they're they're obviously iconic, but some of them are kind of just like, oh, it's not really that great. But what it inspired is so important. And I think that's what makes this such an interesting year. Yeah. All right. Well, the next time you hear from us, we'll be talking about our Oscar predictions for the 2020 Ooh. ceremony. And then we'll be back the week after the 2020 Oscar ceremony with our coverage of the 1968 Oscar ceremony. It's going to be fascinating. There are lots of surviving clips from the mm-hmm. telecast. It's mm-hmm. going to be fun. All right, so we finally watched our very last Oscar movie that we needed to watch. We saw Marriage Story. Noah Baumbach's incisive and compassionate look at a marriage breaking up and a family staying together. Womp womp.
This movie was none of those things. This movie was good when it was Kramer versus Kramer. <laughs> I live tweeted about this. It was quite cathartic, I have to say. I might link to that in the show notes. I will give the movie credit. It has a very good script. It does. It does. And Laura Dern is the only acting nom that I can look at and go, yeah, that makes sense. Because she took what was on the page and she definitely elevated it. Absolutely. She's fucking phenomenal in the movie. And Scarlett Johansson does shit in this movie. And Adam Driver also does shit in this movie. Like, they're not doing anything. This movie feels like a community theater production of somebody's divorce experience. Well, it is definitely somebody's divorce experience. I won't even get into that. But like, there are so many scare quotes, important shots and moments in the movie. Like, there are good moments, but this movie is talked about like it's reinventing telling this type of story, and it's not. They did it 40 fucking years ago, and they did it better and in a more interesting way. Yeah, with better actors, too, so... It just, this movie has its head so far up its own ass. Because it's a Noah Baumbach film. That, yeah, and the thing is, he already made a divorce movie that was actually really good. And different and new, and that was The Squid and the Whale, because it was really told more from the children's perspective. It was told from the children's perspective with much older parents. Yeah. In a much more interesting, unique way. Yeah, and like the kid is such an afterthought in this film. It's like, I don't want to deal with kids, so he's the object, he's not a character. That was maybe my number one problem, is that at no point did I ever believe Scarlett Johansson and Adam Driver had ever been around children, let alone cared about children. Yeah. Like, at no point. Yeah. It's so dumb and so misguided and just... Don't do this. Yeah, it's just, it's. I mean, the script is good. I'm not going to lie. The script is good. I can see it. But like, you didn't do anything good with it. All they did was say, let's put on a show and then got millions of dollars to do it. Ugh. I'm so, there's so many self-important movies this year. So yeah. many. Yeah, well. So now we've seen all the Best Picture nominees. So stay tuned. And later this week, we will have our Oscar picks, our official picks for the 2020 Oscars. It's true. Yeah, they're coming soon. All right. Until next time. Bye, everybody. Bye. Thanks for listening. Be sure to review and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. For questions, comments, and recommendations, you can email us at macintoshandmod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook.